So, hello everyone. Although we still have quite a line and people will be uh, filtering in in the interest of time, we thought we should get started. So, uh, I welcome you who uh, braved the weather and made it here and those watching uh, remotely. It's uh, my pleasure uh, to introduce Dr. Nicholas Maven, uh, an associate professor at Indiana Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, he knows he's not in Houston anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, he's uh, somewhat used uh, to this kind of weather. He's born and raised in New York City, uh, got his bachelor's at um, Skidmore College. A PhD and a postdoc at uh, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. Uh, the, uh, Dr. Wiggler was your uh, mentor. And so, uh, with that background, um, he uh, became an assistant professor at MD Anderson, where uh, I guess as a postdoc, developed some of the techniques that he'll talk about today. But uh, in 2011, a Nature paper, uh, he was the first to report single-cell sequencing in uh, mammalian cells, and he's developed many techniques since then devoted to single-cell sequencing, investigating key questions in cancer, uh, tumor heterogeneity, uh, tumor uh, cell lineages, and uh, today uh, he'll talk about uh, some of that work. Uh, most recently, uh, a cell paper that came out a couple uh, months ago. Uh, and I think uh, with another cell paper coming out soon, uh, hopefully we'll hear about uh, some of that work. Uh, but before uh, I pass it on to uh, Dr. Navin, I have to read that uh, Dr. Navin does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. And he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So without further ado, thank you, Dr. All right. Well, thank you, Craig, so much for that uh, nice introduction and for inviting me here to um, uh, learn about the core facilities and also to give this, uh, this lecture. Um, so I should clarify a little bit, uh, uh, you know, when I was a graduate student at Cold Spring Harbor, we published a paper, um, but it was the first single-cell DNA sequencing method, and that's actually uh, the area that my lab really is uh, well known for, so um, using these methods to understand cancer evolution. Um, and, um, and so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, our efforts to um, study cancer evolution using these very high-resolution uh, methods. And... Um, uh, just a, a question I'd like to ask before we get started, though, is uh, how many of you are using single-cell sequencing methods in your lab or are planning to use them soon? A few people? Great. Um, so I used to ask that question, uh, you know, I've been asking it over the years, and it's gone from almost no one raising their hands to a few people raising their hands, which is really good news, um, especially the RNA methods, which I think are now uh, pretty commercially available. So, um, right, I have no financial conflicts to disclose that's related to um, what I'm going to talk about today, uh, as Craig mentioned. And I'm going to talk about a few different things. Um, I figured I'd, I'd give you a broad overview, uh, overview of the field. It's grown tremendously over the last uh, six or seven years. Um, I'll tell a little bit about our efforts to develop single-cell DNA sequencing technologies, as well as a little bit of RNA work that we've been doing. Um, and then I'll tell you about two stories. Um, one is on uh, metastatic dissemination in colorectal cancer, and the second one is on studying early-stage uh, breast cancer. It's called ductal carcinoma in situ. So um, my lab has been interested uh, for a very long time in understanding how a single somatic cell can acquire mutations and then expand in its lineages and generate what we see uh, uh, in the clinic or in human samples, which is intratumor heterogeneity. And the big question we've had is whether this uh, genetic diversity that's generated throughout tumor evolution, um, is it uh, really just uh, noise um, that we observe um, uh, that's not functionally important? Or uh, is it perhaps important for different processes in cancer, things like tumor initiation or metastasis, or most certainly uh, in processes like therapy resistance? And um, uh, so even though tumor heterogeneity is bad news from a clinical standpoint, because if you sample the tumor from different geographical regions, you might get different results for, say, mutations, um, it's actually great news for uh, those of us studying evolutionary biology, because it provides us 
uh, somewhat permanent record of the mutations that occurred throughout the lifetime of the tumor. And we can then, um, we can infer then the order of those mutations using methods from uh, phylogenetics. And understand what the early mutations are that are important in tumor initiation, later mutations involved in tumor maintenance and expansion, and then mutations involved in things like metastasis or therapy resistance. Um, and we've been very interested in understanding uh, models of evolution. And um, there are several models um, that have been proposed over the years. Um, in the early 70s and 80s, a lot of people uh, uh, believed in, in this model of linear evolution, where it was thought that single mutations that were acquired during tumor evolution would lead to selective sweeps and clonal expansion, um, such that you had survival of the fittest, and in the end you had this one dominant clone that uh, uh, dominated the whole tumor mass. More recent methods from next-generation sequencing, genomic profiling, um, and other methods um, really show that if you sample the tumor at any given time point, you're likely to measure multiple uh, populations that are present. And now there's uh, questions about whether these populations might be interacting in some way to drive uh, tumor growth. And a lot of functional studies are being done in that area. Um, there are other models, like uh, more controversial ones, like neutral evolution, which would suggest that there's uh, only initial genetic selection, and then throughout the lifetime of the tumor, there's no selection and just random drift. Um, there's um, uh, uh, so, so, some people that are uh, trying to say that this occurs in tumors. And um, there's uh, data from our lab and from others uh, in a model that we call punctuated evolution. Uh, in this model, um, what we've seen uh, in our data sets is that there's this early period of genome instability where there's a burst of lots of copy number aberrations, and then the genome restabilizes, and the genotypes that are generated uh, just stably expand throughout the lifetime of the tumor. And we call this punctuated evolution. We've been calling the, uh, the, this model uh, punctuated evolution for quite a while. The other groups that refer to this as Big Bang, which you might have heard too, and colorectal cancer. Uh, for example, Christina Curtis from Stanford. Um, but we like, we like that uh, terminology better. So um, how do you study tumor evolution? There are really three major methods that people are using in the field. Uh, one of them is deep sequencing. So what we do here is you just deeply sequence the tumor, and then you cluster mutation frequencies. And it's assumed that uh, mutation frequencies that cluster together represent individual subpopulations. And uh, this works to some extent. Um, there are a lot of computational methods to infer the populations. But it is difficult to resolve which mutations are uh, specific to individual subpopulations. <laughs> There are also, also methods like multi-region sequencing. This uh, became very popular after a paper by uh, Charlie Swanton in New England Journal of Medicine in ki kidney cancer. Um, and here the idea is that you sample from different geographic regions within the tumor, and then you profile mutations. And uh, the assumption is that clones occupy different regions of the tumor. Now, this method works well when there is a lot of segregation in geographical regions. But it, when there's intermixing, of course, it can't resolve those mutations. And so that's where it becomes a little bit difficult. Um, but this method has been, been used pretty widely now to uh, look at tumor lineages. Uh, and then finally, the area where we've done the most work is single cell uh, sequencing. And here we're able to uh, uh, get the ultimate resolution of a cell and sequence individual mutations and know the genotype of every single cell. Um, but of course, we can't sample as many cells. Or we, we, now we're getting a lot better at this, but initially we couldn't sample a lot of cells, and so we had sampling bias issues. And um, some of our papers are highlighted here. Uh, that have been published by our group, but also many other groups. So um, uh, some advantages and disadvantages of these methods. Um, Single-cell DNA and RNA sequencing can be used for different applications, uh, things like uh, resolving diverse genomes in a complex population of cells, uh, any population. Um, we can also get genomic information on rare subpopulations, which uh, really hasn't been uh, 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 possible in the past when you think about populations like circulating tumor cells or um, cancer stem cells. I wonder if there's a, does anyone have another laser pointer that I could use? No? Let me see, I'm just going to. Oh. Well, I guess I could use the mouse here, too. Oh, perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so um, other applications include uh, tracing cell lineages. This can occur within uh, a tumor, but it can also occur within normal development, uh, so in a tissue. Um, you can infer lineages of differentiation, for example. 
And then uh, finally, um, these methods can be used to do an unbiased profiling to discover cell types uh, that occur either in normal tissues or in the tumor microenvironment. And actually, our lab is involved in a, uh, a project called the Cell Atlas Project, where we profile cell types in the normal breast, and we try to classify both the cell types and the cell states, things like fibroblasts and endothelial cells, uh, so that we can have a reference that we can use when we study tumors. Um, but of course, um, there are also some limitations. Um, one of the big ones used to be sample size. So in the early days, we could only sample and sequence a few dozen cells at a time. Uh, this has largely been overcome with single cell RNA sequencing using uh, nanowells and microdroplet methods. Um, we can now sequence uh, thousands or tens of thousands of cells, so it becomes less of an issue. Still a little bit of an issue for single cell DNA sequencing and epigenetic sequencing, but we can uh, look at now hundreds and thousands of cells. Uh, cost and throughput. Uh, initially, these methods were very expensive, um, you know, $100 to $1,000 per cell. Uh, but these days, you know, that cost has gone way down to, um, you know, just a dollar to maybe $20 or $30, depending on what you're trying to profile. Um, there's still a lot of technical errors. Um, some of these have been overcome by things like molecular barcoding. Uh, that means that we can uh, label each molecule, and then when it gets uh, amplified and distorted, we can then uh, collapse the data and go back to that initial information, which mitigates some of the errors. Uh, and I'll talk about these in more detail in a second. Um, and then sample degradation. This is a big problem for single-cell RNA sequencing. So even though we have great methods to profile cells in microdroplets, uh, it turns out to be a big challenge pre-processing that sample. So making a cell suspension, doing the QC, making sure you have viable cells. And um, uh, so uh, the, it takes a lot of effort. And every sample and tissue type is going to require a slightly different dissociation protocol. <coughs> Um, so what can we measure in individual cells? Uh, well, these days, it's just about everything. We can measure uh, single-cell DNA, both uh, chromosome uh, copy number, uh, structural variations, and then you can do whole genome, exome, or targeted sequencing of single cells. At the RNA level, we can do three-prime profiling, which is good for uh, looking at gene counts, so uh, gene expression levels. Um, but we can also do full-length uh, profiling, and this is good for looking at splicing or getting higher gene counts per cell when you want to look at low-abundance transcripts, things like transcription factors. Uh, within epigenomics, um, I would say probably uh, RNA is the furthest ahead, uh, followed by DNA. And there are some epigenomic method methods, but they probably generate uh, the most amount of noise. The one that's being used most widely in the field is single-cell ataxic. This is a chromatin protection assay. And um, uh, so, uh, so that's being used. There's also DNA methylation and looking at chromatin interactions. Uh, and then also, uh, at the level of proteomics, there are some great methods. There's CYTOF, um, which probably a lot of you have heard about, which is uh, essentially doing mass spec on, on single cells with multi-color multi, um, uh, uh, metals that you can use. And then more recently, there are methods to do what's called imaging mass uh, cytometry, which gives you spatial resolution of cells in a tissue type for a set of markers. And uh, those methods are commercialized now as well. So in terms of progress in the field, um, it's really uh, uh, quite uh, become quite, quite a, um, um, a, a field that with a lot of activity uh, over the last few years. Um, we published one of the first single-cell DNA sequencing methods, but at the same time, there's another group, a colleague of mine, uh, Fucho Tang, who's working on single-cell RNA sequencing uh, in the Sarani lab in Cambridge. And actually, we didn't know about each other's studies for uh, quite a long time. Um, because um, uh, especially his study was a pretty obscure uh, journal. Um, and then other groups like Sunny Shi started developing single-cell DNA sequencing methods. Uh, Beijing Genome Institute actually did a lot of work in this area. Uh, and other labs at Karolinska and at the Weizmann uh, Institute uh, published papers. And then there was a single-cell RNA paper by Aviv Rajev's lab, which really caught a lot of attention uh, looking at glioblastoma. And uh, a lot of work also in circulating tumor cells. And then in the last few years, uh, there's really been this revolution of single-cell RNA sequencing methods uh, using droplet technologies and also nanowells. So we can look at um, thousands or tens of thousands of cells and do this at a very low cost. If you take a look at all the fields that have been impacted, uh, cancer is certainly still the largest one and probably the one where most single-cell DNA sequencing methods are being applied. Um, but there are lots of other fields. Development is a really big one, uh, neurobiology, um, microbiology, uh, and lots of uh, technology and computational tool development. And the number of publications has uh, increased quite dramatically. I only have them cataloged to 2014, but the curve would go uh, way up here, I think, if you try to uh, do this again for a review paper. 
And uh, as I mentioned, there are a lot of um, fields that have been impacted that are very broad, both with single-cell DNA and RNA sequencing methods. Um, a lot of neurobiology to look at various uh, cell types and understand their morphologies and cell states. Um, I've also been invited to a lot of conferences in microbiology, so because there are lots of uh, microorganisms that uh, exist that you can't culture in the lab, and so being able to sequence them directly in environmental samples uh, is very nice and very complementary to um, some of the metagenomic approaches. Actually, another big area that has clinical impact has been prenatal genetic diagnosis. Um, actually, in, uh, so the idea here is that you have a, um, you do, uh, in, uh, <coughs> you do um, in vitro, uh, and then you look at the blastocysts, and you'll have, say, multiple blastocysts from a couple that's trying to uh, conceive a child. And from each blastocyst, you can remove a few cells, and you can actually sequence those cells and even the whole genomes of those cells. And this turns out to be important for transmission of uh, genetic diseases. So if one, pa if one parent is a uh, BRCA carrier, you could then select the blastocysts that are non-BRCA carriers and still have a healthy child. And uh, this is actually being implemented uh, a lot in China um, at the Peking University Hospital. And uh, they've already had a number of uh, children that have been born based on whole genome, single cell um, uh, profiling of the blastocysts to avoid transmission of mostly monogenetic uh, genetic disorders so far. Um, within cancer research, uh, most of the work has initially uh, focused on primary tumors looking at clonal evolution, and this is work by our group, but also by many other groups. Um, more recently, we've moved into looking at metastatic dissemination and circulating tumor cells. Uh, these methods can be used to profile both the DNA and RNA of circulating tumor cells to understand this process. Um, within therapy resistance, uh, now there's been uh, more and more work looking at what are the resistant cells and what are their genotypes and phenotypes. And I think this is really going to be an area that will expand uh, quite greatly over the next few years especially with the availability of single-cell RNA methods. And within translational applications, uh, there are uh, various applications that us and others have been interested in. Uh, there's um, looking at non-invasive monitoring, for example, by circulating tumor cells, as I just mentioned. The advantage there, of course, is that you can measure the blood over multiple time points over the progression of the disease and understand how resistance emerges or monitor response. There are prognostic diversity indexes, so the idea here is that you can look at the amount of diversity within a sample and then try to predict whether a patient might have poor survival, uh, might have um, uh, be more resistant to certain therapies. We also can pr produce these maps, which we think can be very useful, and lineages that can be useful for targeted therapy, trying to understand which combinations of mutations are present in different subpopulations in the tumor. And another area is early detection. This is one that we're very excited about. Uh, in, with early detection, of course, we can collect fluids from many different uh, bodily uh, samples. So everything from sputum for lung cancer or urine for bladder cancer, uh, also prostate fluid for prostate cancer. And in these types of uh, samples, you can collect cells. And in, in addition to just enumerating cells, you can actually look at their genomes and see if they have mutations that have expanded, which might indicate that there's a clonal expansion somewhere in the body, which can then be followed up by imaging. And uh, also at MD Anderson, we have this issue of uh, something we call QNS, so quantity not sufficient for many genomic uh, samples. Uh, things like fine needle aspirates, where you can only collect a few hundred cells. And with these methods, uh, we don't have to profile single cells necessarily, but we can profile 10 or 100 cells and still get very good genomic data sets that can be used uh, in the clinic or from slides. Okay, so that's just a little bit of a uh, broad introduction, and now I'm going to get into a little bit of uh, the technologies we've developed um, over the last six or seven years uh, before getting into uh, really the, uh, the biological applications that we've applied these things to. And this is a few different papers by both uh, some talented graduate students and postdocs in my lab who are listed below. So when I was a graduate student at Cold Spring Harbor, uh, one of my side projects was to look at uh, tumor heterogeneity. And I spent a lot of my graduate career cutting up tumors and trying to do spatial analysis to understand copy number evolution. And on the side, I worked on developing a method to uh, potentially do single-cell profiling. And uh, it never really worked for a very long time. Uh, I tried lots of different methods to isolate single cells, micromanipulation. I finally found that flow sorting is actually a good method that people use for subcloning, and so it was a good way to isolate cells. 
I also learned that it's much easier to work with nuclei instead of cells because uh, nuclei don't really stick together that much, and you can stain them with things like DAPI and look at cell cycle profiles and avoid collecting replicating cells or degraded cells. I also uh, tried a lot of chemistries, and I found that a method called DOP-PCR worked really well for amplifying the whole genome. Um, but for a long time, I tried to hybridize these amplification products of microarrays, and it never really worked well. And I, I never uh, really understood why. Um, the reason turned out uh, being that the microarrays have very specific probes along the surface of the array. And when you amplify using these methods, you amplify about 10% or 5% of the genome. And the majority of the fragments just won't hybridize to the arrays. So I shelved the project for a long time. And then when sequencing came around, I had access to one of the early uh, Illumina, Illumina GA, uh, GA1 instruments and GA2 later on. And um, I found that if you sequence those products, uh, you actually, uh, with sequencing, you sequence everything. So um, you're able to collect data across the genome. And if you uh, count it in intervals across the genome, you can actually get very good copy number profiles. And so this was uh, an exciting finding for me at the time. And also, um, uh, I, I shared it with my PI. And we found that even though at the time it was very expensive because there was no sample multiplexing, so every cell was one lane on a sequencer, um, I convinced them to allow me to have enough uh, funding to be able to sequence up to 100 cells. And we compared those cells and found out that when you look at copy number profiles in a tumor, surprisingly, uh, they're very similar. And so uh, in this specific tumor, there are cells that are diploid, have no copy number changes. And there are these cells that have almost identical copy number changes, representing a, a, a stable expansion of an aneuploid genotype. This other tumor, there were three major populations, and they all share this genetic lineage. And so this early work, we reported a, what we thought was a punctuated model for copy number evolution. And we've done a lot of work uh, subsequently to show um, that, at least for copy number aberrations, this seems to be the case. Um, but that was very expensive, and so I spent a lot of time trying to uh, decrease cost and doing this by things like sample multiplexing, using uh, plates that have 384 wells, and we've gotten the costs way down uh, now down to about $5 per cell, which allows us to look at hundreds or thousands of cells. The other issue is that while copy number um, provides good markers for studying evolution, all, most of the copy number events occur very early on. And so if we want to reconstruct a lineage over the whole time course of the tumor, we really want to look at mutations. And so we continue to develop these techniques to get much higher physical coverage of the genome. That's the number of sites that are covered by at least one or more sequencing reads. And we had to change the chemistries quite a bit, so uh, we now use a method called multiple displacement amplification. And as you can see, we can now get about 80 to 90% coverage of the genome of a single cell. That allows us to look at point mutations and indels. Um, this is just a little bit about the method. It's similar in that we make nuclear suspensions, we flow sort those cells, and then we gate individual populations. Uh, we found out an interesting trick early on, which is that if you collect cells that are in the G2M stage of the cell cycle, they've already duplicated their genomes once. And so if you collect those cells, you actually get better metrics in terms of physical coverage. Now, it can be a little bit dangerous because uh, these cells are, are dividing more rapidly. So if, you don't want, if you're looking for stem cells or something else, of course, you don't want to profile uh, those, those distributions. We then use a method called multiple displacement amplification. It uses a 529 polymerase and a random hexamer. And it creates these kind of networks of strands that keep amplifying. Uh, we found out that it's important to very limit this amplification so that uh, you don't get too many false positives. And we do a lot of quality control using qPCR primers to select which cells will go on to sequencing. We then make uh, libraries using something called TN5 tagmentation. We pull them together, and then we either do whole genome single cell sequencing or we capture just for the exome and then do the sequencing. And what we found out uh, early on by looking at whole genomes of single cells in human uh, tumor samples, this is from an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer patient, is uh, this is a circles plot. So all the mutations are aligned in a ring here. Um, uh, and these are the chromosomes. So some mutations shown in black uh, really are present uh, in every single cell. They tend to be things like PIK3CA, which is a driver mutation, and other mutations which are shared across uh, the tumor. Other mutations uh, are subclonal. They're shown in red and in green. Uh, subclonal mutations are present in a subset of the cells. So they would be, in this case, present in three cells or two cells uh, or less. And then there are some mutations. Um, most of these are intergenic, so they are uh, unlikely, unlikely to at least have a functional role on, uh, on, on the proteins. But a few of them were in coding regions. Um, here's one listed, CADBP2, March 11. And so what we found from this was that really no tumor cells are identical within a human tumor, um, at least at the genetic level. 
And, but these methods are kind of expensive. So if you think about sequencing a single cell, if you want to sequence the genome of a cell, it's going to be the cost of a human genome, still around $2,000. So you're not going to look at a lot of cells this way. Same goes for exomes. Exomes are still about five or $800. So you really want methods to look more at more targeted locations in individual cells so you can look at thousands of cells. And we do this by uh, creating custom capture panels. And we use a very similar approach to what I mentioned before, except now, um, uh, after we make the libraries, we're pulling together 384 cells. We even do 1536 now. And then um, we uh, do capture reactions using these targeted panels. One we use a lot is called a T2000 panel. It's about 25,000 exons. Uh, it's about five megabases of the genome. And so using this, we can now profile hundreds or thousands of cells. We have a lot of different custom capture panels, and uh, it really depends on what type of depth we're trying to get per cell. So it's just a summary of the technologies. Uh, we initially developed methods to do single-cell copy number profiling. They were very expensive and used old sequencers. Uh, we can now do this for about $5 per cell to get whole genome copy number resolution at about 200 kilobases. Um, we have methods to do single-cell whole genome sequencing, uh, which we call NukeSeq. Um, it's about $1,000 per cell. You can do single-cell exome sequencing if you want to. Um, actually, the people that are do, looking at prenatal genetic diagnosis and when they don't have a lot of cells are still doing these very broad approaches. Um, but the method we're using the most these days is, is single nucleus targeted sequencing. So we're trying to look at uh, custom panels of cancer genes across many single cells to understand tumor evolution. And just to tell you a little bit about the technical errors, um, the one that we still face, which is our big uh, you know, technical error that we haven't been able to uh, get rid of is what we call allelic dropout. Those are sites that are heterozygous in the initial cell, and after amplification, you drop out one of the alleles. So you either go to AA or you go to BB. And um, when you go to, when you drop out the mutation BB and you go to AA, that's a false negative. You completely miss that mutation. So that's very bad news. Um, when you drop out the other allele, you just incorrectly infer it as homozygous instead of heterozygous. So it's not as big of a problem. This occurs about 10% of the sites, so it's relatively high. And the way we overcome it mostly is by profiling larger numbers of cells. Um, and so uh, that, that's one error that, that we're still working on from a technology standpoint. Uh, another error that we initially thought would be pretty bad are false positive errors. Those are sites that are, say, AA homozygous. And then during amplification, the polymerase introduces a new mutation. <clears throat> and so you go to AB. Now, the good news about these is they're mostly deamination errors, so they're easy to identify, and they're completely random from cell to cell. So if you compare even two cells and you find the same mutation at the same site, it's very unlikely to be an error. And we actually developed variant detection algorithms that use what we call consensus variant calling, so we only call mutations across multiple cells. Um, there are some sites still with no coverage. We could probably improve this a little bit, but not much more. And then another issue is coverage non-uniformity. So when you sequence a genome, you get kind of wavy coverage. It correlates with GC content. Uh, when you sequence a single cell, you get much wavier coverage. And so you need higher overall coverage uh, to address this issue of instead of Poisson-distributed data, you have negative binomial-distributed data. So you might miss some mutations. And we also use consensus variant calling to address some of these issues. So in the end, we usually have a matrix. And the matrix has single cells as columns and individual uh, mutations or um, or, say, copy events as rows. And um, in a perfect world, it would look something like this. In reality, we're dealing with something like this, where we have these uh, allelic dropout errors, we have missing data, we have false positives, and other errors that we have to deal with to infer the clonal substructure of the tumor. So a lot of my group uh, is actually um, focuses on developing new algorithms and uh, computational biology. And uh, we've developed methods like Monovar, which is a variant caller, which overcomes some of the technical errors that I just mentioned using a genotype likelihood model. Uh, it does not overcome this problem of allelic dropout, um, which uh, really requires, I think, better technologies. We've developed methods to infer uh, lineages in tumors that, make, uh, that overcome some of the assumptions that previous methods have had with uh, finite sites. Um, we've done a lot of uh, method development for copy number estimation using something called variable binning, which um, allows us to uh, overcome some of the mapping issues in single cells and get uh, very flat copy number profiles in diploid cells. And um, the really cool thing about having single cell data for copy number estimation is that every cell should have integer values for the number of chromosomes. So we can actually infer that from our data, which is nice for the downstream uh, analysis. 
And then finally, I'm not going to talk about this too much today, but we've also worked a lot on single cell RNA sequencing. Um, we actually use NanoWell approaches, and we've worked a lot with a company uh, to develop this. And uh, in this case, um, we're taking uh, cells, or the reason we developed this is because we can collect nuclei from frozen tissues and do single cell RNA sequencing from the nuclei. We use a nanogrid, and we deposit the cells into the grid. Uh, we then do imaging, and we only pick wells that have one single cell, and we look at um, uh, the quality of that cell as well. Uh, select those cells, you flip the chip over, pool them. Every well has a barcode. Uh, we do some of the, we do the RT chemistry then on the pooled sample, and um, afterwards we just sequence this one uh, sample which has up to 1,800 cells. And this is just an example from a triple negative breast cancer patient where we sequenced uh, single nuclei RNA profiles, and then we uh, looked at the data in high-dimensional space, and it had these three different subpopulations. Some of them had uh, more oncogenes like BRCA2 and Aurora kinase. Uh, this population was probably also more proliferative since it had KI67. <clears throat> okay, so that's a little bit about the technologies, and now I'm going to move into some of the biological applications that we've applied these tools to. And the four, first story will be on uh, metastatic dissemination in colorectal cancer. And this involves uh, two graduate students in my lab, one who works on the experimental side, the other one who's more on the statistics side, and a uh, GI oncologist, Scott Kobez, along with a pathologist. And so it's really a, a joint effort. <clears throat> and um, here we were very interested in models of uh, metastasis. And uh, we were trying to understand whether uh, in colorectal cancer and other cancer types, whether there's a late dissemination model. This is the classical model. In this model, it's thought that a single cell uh, will, uh, will expand. It acquires lots and lots of mutations. And then when it finally acquires mutations necessary for metastasis, those cells will uh, intravasate into the blood and then see the distant tumors. But there's a long period of evolution in the primary site before this happens. Um, there's another um, uh, series of people that think that, uh, in fact, the cells disseminate at the very early stages of tumor progression. So even when the, when the tumor is just a few hundred or a thousand cells, the cells start to disseminate into the blood and to distant organ sites, and they form micrometastases, and that they expand in parallel, and so have very different genetic uh, backgrounds. And there's another model, too, which has been popularized a lot at Sloan Kettering by Larry Norton and Juan Massaguet. Uh, and this idea is that uh, primary tumors expand, and uh, then the cells start to disseminate to metastatic sites, but they travel back and forth bidirectionally, and that helps the growth of both tumor sites. Um, and so single-cell methods are actually really good at dissecting uh, these different models, especially the self-seeding model, which has been hard, uh, I think, for many people to, uh, to look for in human samples. So, um, and the question is, you know, why, why do we choose uh, colon cancer? Um, colon cancer is one of the few, so in most of the samples at MD Anderson, they will take a primary tumor, and then there will be lots of therapy before they take a metastatic lesion. Colon cancer is actually one of the few cases where they will resect the primary colon, and they will also uh, surgically resect the liver, uh, uh, the liver by hepectomy when there's metastatic uh, tumor cells there. And so um, it's one of the few cancers where we can really get time-matched samples without intervening therapy um, uh, before any treatment. <clears throat> So we focused on two patients. Uh, we had col primary colon cancer samples and liver metastases. We made nuclear suspensions, and we flow-sorted the cells. We gated cells that were aneuploid or diploid. And then we went through and did either single-cell copy number profiling or single-cell mutational analysis using that uh, panel I just told you about, the T2000 panel. Uh, and we also did bulk exome analysis in parallel. Um, when we looked at the mutations of the single cells, what we found is that if you just cluster all the data, you'll see that most of the normal cells clustered together. That's both from the primary metastatic sites, but you also get uh, individual cells that are met-specific or primary-specific, and that was true for both cases. If you take a closer look at these heat maps, uh, let me just walk you through these quickly. These are single cells going across the bottom here, and these are mutations going down the y-axis. Um, you can see there are a lot of cells that are normal. They don't have any mutations. And then you have primary cells that have all these mutations, including things like APC, P53, uh, KRAS. And then in the metastatic site, we have these additional mutations as shown over here. Uh, if we take a look at the other patient, you can see the, the substructure is a little bit more complex. You do have normal cells with no mutations. Uh, you have an interesting group of uh, cells over here, which I'll talk about a little bit later, that have some mutations. 
And then you have the primary cells, which are over here, and then you have the metastatic cells, which are over here. Um, you can see that the metastatic cells acquired additional mutations, uh, and there are actually three separate populations uh, labeled as MP1, M2, and M3 uh, that I'll talk about a little bit more um, in just a little bit. Um, but you'll see that all the mutations like APC, KRAS, uh, P53 are acquired uh, in the primary tumor uh, at an early stage um, based on these data. So next, we also do single-cell copy profiling. Again, cluster the data. So we have primary cells and metastatic cells. They separate very well. Um, most chromosomal amplifications and deletions are shared between the primary cells and the metastatic cells, but there are also some differences. Um, for example, uh, at the metastatic lesion, there were, uh, this patient acquired uh, chromosome 10 and 11 amplifications. Um, if you take a look down here, we'll see that in the primary tumor, we have these sets of amplifications and deletions. Um, and in the metastatic tumor, you actually have two populations labeled as M1 and M2. They differ over here by an event that's on chromosome 3. Um, but again, they uh, separate well in uh, high-dimensional space based on their organ site. So we took all of the mutation data, and we use this to uh, build what's called a mutational tree. And biologists actually, uh, including myself, really like looking at these trees um, because what we do here is we're actually ordering the mutations that occurred throughout tumor evolution based on the single cell data, and then we're using something called maximum likelihood to attach the single cells back to the tree where they support the order of those mutations. So every gray little circle represents a single cell, and these are the mutations. I hope you can read them. Um, and so a lot of the normal cells got attached back to the root node, which is the zygote. Um, but then we saw uh, APC, then KRAS, then P53, uh, cyclin E, a uh, number of mutations, until we got to this uh, interesting mutation, POU2AF. Uh, after that mutation was acquired, the cells disseminated to the liver, uh, where they continue to uh, expand at the liver metastatic site. Um, and so when you look at these trees, when you see more single cells attached, uh, there's more confidence in the ordering of these mutations. So up here, earlier in the lineage, of course, it's harder to infer because there are fewer cells, but we can still uh, infer some of these data. Um, and so uh, that's how you interpret the data. So all these mutations were acquired, and after POU2AF, there was this uh, seeding event, and then those cells continued to expand at the metastatic site. This is what we would call a late dissemination model um, because the cells had to acquire all these mutations before they disseminated. In the second patient over here, you see a lot of the cells, again, attached to the zygote. Um, but what's different here is that you have two separate lineages. You have this one little lineage that um, acquired a few mutations like ALK, uh, and a few others, and it expanded, but not very much. And it was only present in the primary site. And so we call this an independent lineage. It didn't have any of the known uh, driver mutations that you typically see in colorectal cancer, like KRAS, APC, and P53. If we take a look over here uh, at the mutations, we then have P53, APC, several mutations, and then we get to MN1. And after that, there was a seeding event to the liver metastasis where the cells continued to expand. Now, interestingly, while that liver metastasis was growing, additional mutations were acquired over here. And then after a second APC uh, mutation and ATR, those cells disseminated to the liver a second time and continued to expand. But in the liver, these two populations are intermixed within the liver. But it looks like there was polyclonal seeding of two separate metastatic events. And I'm going to just talk about a few very interesting features of these trees. Um, the first is uh, independent uh, lineages. Um, so we've now sequenced many, many tumors, and there's also a lot of multi-region sequencing data. And what all the data tells us is that those regions and those cells can all be traced back to what we call a truncal node that has the initial mutations that suggest that the tumor started from one single cell uh, in the tumor and not multiple initiating cells. Um, in this case, we saw a set of tumor cells that had completely different mutations that expanded and were not shared by the main lineages. And so we think this is very interesting. This is probably a pre-malignant lesion that expanded a little bit, um, but didn't really take off. And we think as we start to look at tumors with more high-resolution methods like this, we're going to start to see a lot of these uh, early neoplasms that just don't really take off. Um, uh, we also took a careful look at this polyclonal seeding event where there were two uh, individual seedings to the liver metastasis. It could be by single cells. It could be by clusters. We're not really sure. Um, but we took a careful look at these mutations. We call these bridge mutations because they occurred between the seeding events. And so um, if there were two seeding events, the order of these mutations should be accurate. Indeed, when we took a closer look at the read counts and the probabilities of the read counts being correct, we found that those four mutations really were present uh, in the second metastasis and absent in the first metastasis, suggesting that there were, there were these two independent seeding events.
And then probably the most interesting thing we found in our data sets, and this was completely uh, fortuitous, um, was that we found a few cells, actually three cells, um, that were diploid and didn't have any copy number changes, and they had the very first mutation in APC. So this is a heterozygous mutation. And they didn't have any of the other mutations that we saw in the other cancer cells. And so it really suggests that these cells acquired that very first hit in APC, and it was heterozygous. If you look at the tumor cells, you can see that um, these cells are actually very aneuploid, and you can see that APC became homozygous, and there are many other mutations present in these cells. Um, so I think we just got lucky. Um, it's interesting that these are about 3% of the tumor mass, um, and so uh, more prevalent than uh, you might expect. Um, so it's, it's kind of puzzling because you wonder why these cells that have only this APC mutation had such a fitness advantage that would allow them to continue to expand at a frequency of 3% when all the other tumor cells have lots of other mutations and, of course, are expanding. So, um, uh, you know, I thought this was a really interesting result, and I showed this data to Bert Vogelstein at ACR um, uh, last year, actually. And um, he said, well, that's nice, but, you know, we've known this already for about 30 years. Uh, if you go look at my model of, uh, of progression, APC is the very first mutation. Um, and so um, uh, I think it's, you know, I think he was still pretty impressed because uh, to actually see data for that at a single cell level is pretty impressive. Um, but, of course, the other uh, patient I showed you, uh, APC, was not, we did not infer that as the first mutation. In that case, it was P53. Um, so we think that's, that's quite interesting, and it, you know, it, does, it does fit some of this, these early uh, models, certainly. And so in um, this colorectal cancer patient, we saw evidence for what we call late dissemination. Even in the patient with two dissemination events, all the driver mutations occurred first, APC, KRAS. Um, and others. And um, this has implications, I think, for the clinic, um, which, of course, they already uh, follow this in, in surgical practice because what they know is that even if you resect the primary tumor at the very late stages of progression, you can still prevent metastasis. And so that's important uh, in a late dissemination model. If there was early dissemination, there would be very little hope for removing the primary tumor to prevent metastasis. <coughs> So that's uh, one story in colon cancer, and now I'm going to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about a paper that was uh, just published in Cell a few weeks ago. Um, this is in DCIS breast cancer. And so this is a work by a graduate student of mine, Anna Kassasen, a pathologist that works in DCIS, Mary Edgerton, and another student of mine, Aislinn Schalk, who uh, works in bioinformatics. And um, so the question here is, um, there are these early stage breast cancers called ductal carcinoma in situ. Um, they, uh, can, they, they're thought to be early uh, uh, precursors to invasive ductal carcinoma. But in low-grade DCIS, only about uh, 1 in 10 patients will progress to invasive carcinoma. So it's very hard to stratify these patients and decide which ones need treatment and which ones don't. Now, if you look at the grade, in the higher-grade patients, it's a little bit more frequent. There's about 30% of patients that progress. Um, but it's still a big uh, clinical problem. And so by pathology, these stages have been pretty well defined. Um, uh, there's, there's just in situ populations where you have tumor cells that are in the ducts, and you have these uh, DCIS with uh, invasion or microinvasion, where the cells have already started to escape and migrate. And then later on, it's very hard to see any ductal structure because everything is undifferentiated. In terms of evolutionary models in the DCIS field, um, there are really two uh, paradigms. One was that there was um, early evolution in the ducts, and this would generate multiple clones. And then one of those clones would have the mutations necessary to break through the basement membrane and expand, and this would lead to a population bottleneck and selection of that genotype. Um, another model that comes more from clinical studies is this idea of independent lineages, where um, this comes mostly from observations that in a DCIS breast cancer, you can find certain geographical regions that have only in situ cells in the ducts and other regions that have invasive cells. And so a lot of um, pathologists and clinicians have thought that, um, and also looking at targeted mutations that are discordant, have thought that there are two different initiating cells, one that gives rise to the DCS, one that gives rise to the invasive population, and that, uh, at least genetically, they should be unrelated. Um, and we wanted to know whether there might also be other evolutionary models possible to explain this process. And so um, the issue was really that most single-cell techniques um, that are available uh, require suspensions of cells. And so when you make a suspension of cells, you lose all that geographical um, information. And so we wanted to develop an approach that could give us the spatial resolution and know the position of the cells uh, throughout the tumor mass. And so we developed this approach um, in which we uh, use 
uh, laser capture microdissection. We first scan a whole tissue section that's H&E stained. We then use a one micron laser to cut out an individual cell from the tissue. And then we use a method called laser catapulting. Uh, so what's laser catapulting? It provides a transfer energy that will allow a single cell to catapult from the surface into a collection vial so that we can do uh, genomic amplification. And it's important for single cell work because it's a touchless approach. So we tested out a lot of polymer melting systems, and the problem is that they actually touch the whole tissue. When they pull back, they include a lot of other cells and microbes. Um, so this turned out to be pretty critical for these uh, experiments. We then uh, have robotic uh, automation, which collects the cells. We do whole genome amplification, uh, and then we're able to pool the cells based on their barcodes. We sequence them, we demultiplex the data, and then we have a picture and image of each cell and its uh, morphology. And we also have its XY coordinates, uh, we actually have Z coordinates too, um, of that cell in space. And that's important in DCIS because some cells will come from the ducts and they'll be in situ, and other cells will be from uh, the invasive areas or the stromal areas, and we can compare those cells. So this is just a quick uh, video of how that actually works. Um, this is an H&E section from a patient with DCIS breast cancer, MD Anderson. Um, we're kind of scanning through, looking for a cell that we're going to collect. Uh, we're being a little bit opportunistic here. Um, here's a cell. And so we're going to take the one micron laser. We're going to first cut around that cell. And then we're going to take um, the laser uh, catapulting energy, and we're going to um, uh, provide a pulse that will project that cell towards you, where there's actually a little uh, tube sitting in a 96-well plate that will collect that cell by robotic automation. And there it goes, so towards you, yeah. And um, it's not uh, super high throughput, but you can, you can do this on 96 uh, cells in about an hour or so uh, once, all the, uh, once everything is set up, which can take a little while. Um, so then we're able to get individual cells uh, shown here that are catapulted, and we can then measure their copy number profile and look for amplifications and deletions across the genome. Uh, and then understand uh, the process of invasion. Now, um, this does, is not a perfect method by any means. Um, we've optimized it as much as we can, but we still have some errors that come. Some are from the UV laser, which can induce damage. Luckily, that da damage is random, so we can filter out the cells. The other source of error is we cut through some of the cells when we make tissue sections, and so we have to remove those as well. So we filter out about 20% of our data now. Um, so we decided to look at synchronous DCIS patients, which means in the same tissue section, they're both clearly defined in situ regions and clearly defined invasive regions. And these are high-grade patients. Uh, we looked at about 10 patients at MD Anderson, and they were all treatment naive. And so we profiled about 100 uh, to um, 200 cells per patient. And this is the data from one of the patients. I'm going to walk you through it uh, very quickly. Um, so this is a heat map of the clustered single-cell copy number profiles. Anything in red is an amplification, blue is deletion. These are single cells going down the rows, and across here you have the genomic coordinates for the different chromosomes. And if you cluster all the data, you can see that there are cells in this N cluster. They're diploid. They don't have any copy number aberrations. And then you have three tumor populations, A, B, and C. We then collapse these data, and we get what's called a consensus profile, and then we compare those consensus profiles to look at regions across the genome that have amplifications or deletions that distinguish these subpopulations. So here, for example, all the populations had MYC amplification, but if you take a look at, for example, RB1, that was uh, homozygously deleted in only one population. Uh, if you look at FHIT over here, it's deleted in only one population. We take that data, and we're able to uh, infer the uh, common ancestors, as shown over here, and the diversification of those populations in the in situ and invasive regions. Uh, so in this case, what's important to look at here is that all the three subpopulations had already uh, diversified and expanded in the ducts, and as they escaped and went to the, uh, migrated into the invasive regions, they just expanded. They didn't acquire uh, additional copy number alterations. Uh, this is another way to show that data in high-dimensional space, where for each genotype, you see both Xs and Os that represent both the invasive and the in situ cells. Um, but then the really neat thing about having this data is you can then go back and map it to the tissues. And so these are the DCIS tissues. Uh, these are three sections from the same patient. Uh, the genotypes are in different colors, and uh, these are showing some of the ducts. And so what you can see is that certain genotypes, like the black one over here, uh, this one is really uh, located mostly in the ducts. There are a few cells that have spread out to the invasive areas, but it's highly localized within the ductal regions. That's in contrast to other genotypes, for example, like uh, the blue one, which is spread out across a lot of the invasive regions, and there are a few cells in the ducts, um, but this uh, population has expanded quite a bit. 
And so um, you can uh, get some idea of which populations might be more migratory or more invasive and other ones that prefer to be more localized within the ducts from these data. This is another patient, and we detected two major populations, A and B. Um, these are the consensus profiles. You can see that one of them had a lot of deletions, as shown in blue. Uh, the other one had some amplifications. Um, again, we saw this expansion of the two populations, which then co-migrated from the duct into the invasive areas. And um, uh, this shows you a little bit about the distribution of uh, the cells across the genotypes. Again, in this uh, sample, when we looked at the geographical location of the cells across the tissue sections, we saw that one genotype A was highly localized to the ducts, while the other genotype in blue was really spread out across the invasive regions. And so that gives us um, some interesting spatial information that we can look at here. We looked at 10 patients this way, and in all patients we had um, the same populations present, both in the DCIS and the invasive region of the same patient. Some of them were monoclonal, so the same clone existed both in the ducts and in the invasive areas. And the other ones we saw uh, cells both in the ducts and in the invasive areas, where there were either two populations or three populations or four. We also looked at the amount of copy number diversity, and we found that it was similar across the board, both in the in situ and the invasive areas. And um, we also looked at the number of subpopulations across the tumors. We found that it ranged in general from one to three populations, or, or in some cases even four or five. Um, from the multiclonal tumors, we could then look at clonal evolution, and we found that, as I showed you for the first two patients, in all cases, the populations had evolved and diversified in the ducts, and then they simply co-migrated from the ducts into the invasive areas. And what you see sometimes is a little bit of a change in the frequencies, um, which uh, may suggest that certain populations are selected a little bit more in the invasive uh, areas. Um, but overall, the important thing to notice is that the same populations are present in both uh, uh, geographical regions in the tissues. So another way to look at that data that we really like is something called a tanglegram. So in a tanglegram, uh, we map the genetic data to the spatial data to understand the distributions. And I'll just explain this very quickly. On this side over here, we have this, you can think of this as a hierarchical tree. There are these subpopulations labeled as A, B, C, D, and E. On the other side, we have the spatial coordinates uh, for each cell. And so we map them together. And if you, um, these are the ducts. So, in, so uh, this is one duct, this is a duct. The gray area are the invasive areas. And so if you take a look at one clone, like for example C, you can see that it maps to many invasive areas and it also maps to many ducts. But if you take a look at this other genotype, E, you can see that it's highly associated just with the ducts. And you don't find, you only find a few cells that map to invasive areas. And so this allows you to understand to some extent the uh, migratory uh, potential of some of these uh, cells. And uh, this is just showing uh, you for a few more patients that uh, we often find the case that there's one major clone, for example, A over here, which is highly localized to the ducts, and there are other populations like B, which are spread out across more of the invasive regions, but also some of the ducts. And we also looked at exome sequencing. So we call this our microgenomics approach, where we're not looking at single cells, but we usually look at a few hundred cells. And we uh, isolated regions from the ducts or from the invasive areas. We sequenced the exome mutations, and we compared the mutations. We found that, for the most part, most mutations were shared between the ducts and the invasive areas, uh, including driver mutations like PIK3CA and P53 and others. However, there were a few uh, mutations that were specific to the invasive regions. And so we wanted to ask the question in some of the patients. So we want to ask the question, uh, are these new mutations that arose after the invasive event, or did they actually exist in the ducts at very low frequencies? And so we used um, uh, targeted deep amplicon sequencing to answer that question. And in most patients, we found that uh, those mutations uh, were found after, were, were not uh, detected in the ducts. Um, so we can't say that they didn't exist, but if they existed, it was at very low frequencies, uh, except for one patient um, over here, patient eight, where some of those mutations were found in the ducts, but at low frequencies. And so this suggests that most of the invasive specific mutations that we detected uh, probably occurred after uh, invasion as the tumor cells were expanding across the tumor mass and are not likely to play such an important role in crossing the basement membrane. We also took the exome data and we computed um, clonal populations uh, from the allele frequencies using the method I described much earlier on in my talk. And we found that um, in some cases, the same populations were present in the ductal regions and the invasive regions with little change in the clonal frequencies. In other cases, um, both populations existed uh, in the ducts and the invasive areas, but there was some selection of those uh, populations uh, during this event. 
So to summarize, um, what our data suggests is um, we didn't see evidence for uh, independent evolution, where you would expect a completely different set of mutations, both in the ducts and in the invasive areas. Um, and we also did see evidence of an evolutionary bottleneck, where a single clonal genotype was selected either at the level of mutations or copy number aberrations uh, during invasion. Instead, our data support uh, what we call a multi-clonal uh, invasion model, where in the ducts you have all the genome evolution that occurs at the genetic level, both mutations and copy number alterations, and then multiple clones are generated and they co-migrate into the invasive areas from the ducts. And so, um, uh, so to, to summarize this, this um, section of the talk, um, we developed a spatially resolved single-cell sequencing method, which can be used also for RNA and mutations, and those are things we're working on now, but here was specifically for copy number alterations. Um, our data is consistent with this idea of punctuated evolution because we see early in the ducts we have this initial uh, copy number bursts of copy number events that occur, and we also see a lot of early mutations. And so in our previous data, we really didn't know when these punctuated events were occurring. This looks like it's occurring at the earliest stages of tumor progression. Um, what does the data actually mean? Um, it could mean that uh, clones are cooperating in some way to break down the basement membrane and uh, invade, but alternatively, it could also mean that there's a leader clone that breaks through the membrane and kind of paves the way for all the other cells to escape. Uh, and so um, uh, uh, we think either model is possible. It's going to require more work probably in using more in vitro or vivo systems uh, to understand that. And then clinically, we think this is important too because because we see all the mutations and copy number events very early on in the ducts, um, we may be able to use those as biomarkers to distinguish which patients will become invasive and which will remain uh, in situ uh, for the lifetimes. But this will uh, require looking at larger sets of patients and looking at pure DCIS cancers, which we didn't look at uh, in this study. Um, and so uh, we developed um, high-throughput methods to do single-cell DNA sequencing, which I told you about. In colon cancer, we saw late dissemination, but this is only in two patients. We haven't looked at a large number yet. And in DCIS breast cancer, we reported this multiclonal uh, model of invasion. And for my final slide, I just want to uh, mention some of the future directions that we're working on. Um, uh, we're working on now a lot of imaging technologies to understand how we can connect uh, imaging data, intravital or live cell, with the genetic data to understand um, how certain mutations lock cells into certain phenotypes and vice versa. Um, as you uh, can see from the cell paper, we're doing a lot of work with spatially resolved uh, single cell sequencing, and that's going to be very important for early stage cancers where um, there are few cells and they're uh, distinguished in various geographical regions. We're also doing work on multimodal measurements, doing DNA and RNA from the same cells, but potentially you could also do uh, look at epigenetics or attack seq protocols, uh, profiles uh, with the RNA. And then we're very interested in how we can move these techniques into the clinic. And we think areas like early detection, uh, diagnostics, and non-invasive monitoring uh, are some of the best areas to focus on uh, initially. So that's all I have. And um, I just want to thank all the people in my lab who actually did the work, uh, the funding support, and then all of our great uh, clinical collaborators, and of course, the sequencing core facility uh, where I'm the co-director and they're right next door to us and uh, actually do all the, the sequencing experiments. So I'll take any questions and thank you very much. Question in the back? Yeah. In relation to the Japan beginning, you show in the cluster that they don't move, they disappear. Do you know if these mutations are related to the production of new antigens that the immune system recognizes and eliminates those cells? We don't know. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Um, um, yeah, we could uh, try to do new antigen prediction, I guess, on those mutations. Um, they certainly didn't expand, but I think um, um, either, uh, you know, they also didn't have the driver mutations you typically see in colon cancer, so they may need things like APC and KRAS and P53 to um, overcome a lot of the cancer hallmarks and actually expand. But, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to understand um, in general why uh, certain neoplasias and hyperplasias uh, never make it and never expand. And it could be something as, uh, uh, you know, as simple as uh, just the geographical boundaries. I mean, if you, in breast cancer, for example, if you want to escape the ducts, now suddenly the immune cells uh, can really detect you, especially T cells. So, um, so I think it would be interesting to look at that in more detail. Yeah. Oh. 
That was great, Nicholas. Um, so kind of a similar question, but I thought I saw in some of your matched colorectal primary metastatic pairs um, a number of examples of mutations in the primary that weren't in the metastasis. And do you always infer in terms of creating parsimonious phylogenies that that is just independent ongoing evolution in the primary or that mutations can also be occasionally lost, not just exclusively gained during metastatic progression? And one mechanism for mutational loss would be immunoediting. Right, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, so it, so in general we see, you know, in most cases you see a set of mutations that are shared between the primary and metastatic tumors, and uh, those typically occur within the phylogenies. Um, um, but, you know, the, when there's a metastatic event, of course the primary tumor can continue evolving. So in one patient we just had one additional mutation that was acquired in the primary and many more of the metastatic site. Uh, in the other patient, of course, we had these two separate seeding events, and so... During that whole time, while all those two seeding events were occurring, the primary tumor continued to evolve and expand and acquire mutations. So I wouldn't, uh, based on our lineages, I wouldn't say that those mutations were lost in the metastatic lineage. I would say that metastasis occurred earlier in the lineage. Um, but of course, there can be, uh, you know, at the metastatic site, that could be LOH, other copy number changes, ways to lose mutations. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that um, uh, tumor cells are just always acquiring mutations and never lose mutations because, of course, there can be negative selection from things like the immune system. Yeah. So in your uh, uh -huh. CNAs, what, what's the resolution? <laughs> How, are most of those copy number changes whole chromosomes, or are there local pockets and amplicons, you know, the way a lot of the early data apply to these? Yeah, um, we've looked at this quite extensively in, in breast cancer. So the lowest resolution we can look at right now is about 50 kilobases. Um, and um, that seems to be a little bit overkill for most uh, breast cancer copy number aberrations. So we've actually found that you know, we can sequence more cells and still detect the same events if we do 200 KB resolution. So that's actually what we use for most of our experiments. Um, there are focal events and there are arm level events. Uh, we uh, detect both of them, of course. A lot of the very focal high level events, uh, if you look at cytogenetics, a lot of them are double minute chromosomes. Things like MYC are often find, found on, uh, on, on double minute chromosomes. Um, so they're both there. Uh, if you could go very, very small, we think you would see other events, um, which we don't detect right now, um, that others are working on, things like segmental duplications and very small insertions and deletions. Uh, indels we can see in our mutation data, but uh, small segmental duplications we can't detect right now. So, and they probably also contribute to you know, cancer progression. So do you intentionally look at germline cells, and how do you filter those out of your, your data? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so sometimes we do intentionally look at the germline cells. Um, we uh, have a nice trick, which is that you can separate diploid and aneuploid populations. And when we, in breast cancer, I don't know about other cancer types, uh, if you sequence diploid and aneuploid fractions, you always find all the mutations in the aneuploid fractions and none of the mutations in the diploid fractions. So all the aneuploid tumor cells uh, harbor mutations, and it turns out to be a very good way to purify the tumor populations. But if you want to look at the diploid populations, you can as well. And in colon cancer, I showed you that those cells that had that APC mutation, they were diploid. Uh, they didn't have any copy number aberrations. And so I think there could be some interesting stuff there, especially uh, for other cancer types, and trying to understand, you know, what are really the earliest mutations that occur in some of these cancers. There are probably going to be some of the truncal mutations that you see frequent across patients, but there's probably a lot of stuff there, too, that we don't think about that are important early on in tumor evolution, not so important later on in maintenance and, um, well, metastasis. Yeah. Oh, they're not germline. No, no, because um, we always sequence a match normal sample and then we filter out the mutations. So, yeah, those are not germ. Those are not, for example, Lynch syndrome mutations. This may be a very basic question, but if you took this exact same technology, single cells, and asked the question about mutations in primary epithelial, mammary epithelial cells, normal epithelial cells, would you find a spectrum of mutations in there occurring as well? Uh, I mean, what's the diversity cell by cell in a, in a normal? You know, yeah. So the, 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 so we've looked at this a lot with copy number, and we haven't looked that much with mutations. So interestingly, um, if you not all cells are diploid. So if you profile 100 uh, breast mammary epithelial cells, you'll find that about 2 to 3% of those will have a whole chromosome event that's either gained or lost. 
And it tends to be more frequent in the X chromosome. And we think those are lagging chromosomes that occur um, by uh, cell division errors. And, but those cells, they never take off. I mean, you've, if there's just a one-off, you never see an expansion of those populations. Um, but yes, there is a, you know, uh, aneuploidy that occurs in normal tissues. And actually, uh, a colleague of mine, Angelica Amon, who's at, uh, at, um, uh, up at uh, MIT Broad, she has looked at a lot of, um, uh, she's used our methods to look at a lot of different tissue types in mice, and she finds rates of aneuploidy in about 1 to 3%, depending on the tissue type. Uh, there was another paper in, uh, in, that looked at brain and neurobiology and argued that they thought that 40% or 50% of the neurons were aneuploid, but um, that, that data is very noisy, and a lot of people don't, don't really believe it. So I think the levels are low. It's, it's kind of interesting to look at the variation across tissues. Um, if you look at the classical literature, people think liver and neurons have, might have more aneuploidy than other tissues. So. But mutations we haven't looked at in, any, in, in much detail so far. Yeah. I think for, for a long time, the belief in the field has been that uh, metastatic progression is, is driven by epigenetic mechanisms and changes in transcript uh, expression rather than genetic events. From your data, are you now able to see conserved genetic events that are driving metastatic progression? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think our so what we're doing here is kind of like lineage tracing studies. So. We're, you know, we're a bit agnostic to, we're not really looking for what are the driver mutations uh, in, in, the, in metastasis and how, how do they compare to transcriptional events. Um, so um, uh, I think what's interesting about our data is that when you look at these line, very detailed lineages, you know, you see the driver mutations and then suddenly you go down and there's this mutation, POU2AF. After that mutation, those cells metastasize and, you know, that's, a gene that's not typically implicated in metastasis, and we see that in the other tumor too. We, you know, we can track exactly at which mutation the cell started metastasizing. And these are not usually genes you think about, you know, in terms of uh, uh, intravasation or migration and things like that. So I think it is a nice way to, you know, look at the genetics. On the other hand, um, there have been a lot of studies comparing primary metastatic tumors just sequencing the bulk tumor, and people have been very disappointed there in not finding a lot of metastasis-specific mutations across cancer types. That's true for colon cancer, breast, many other cancer types. And so I think um, what's come out of that a lot is that maybe you know um, some of the some of the gene expression changes might be more important, or some of the epigenetic changes. So. Okay. Okay. Thank you again.